Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Critical Theory, which is a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Johanna Taylor, who's an assistant professor at Arizona State University's Design School, about her new book, The Art Museum Redefined, Power, Opportunity and Community Engagement. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, this is an incredibly interesting book. Um, it, it sort of does several things at once I think you've got the story of New York and a particular bit of New York which is just you know fascinating and you've got a really big story about what the function of cultural institutions should be in our current time and and in particular this this place and I, I guess that the place to start with the book and to kind of introduce it is is what what got you interested in writing about uh, museums and particularly like what got you interested in writing about this fascinating a bit of, of, of Queens? Yes, thanks. That's a great question. I first moved to New York City to work for arts organizations and found myself really immersed in this depth of culture and people and vibrancy that was happening across the city. So I initially lived in Harlem and then Brooklyn, but was traveling all over the city to go to different organizations and see what was happening. So when I started um, my interest in connecting urban policy and questions around cities to my dedication to working in the art world and what my arts colleagues were interested in, the Queens Museum in Corona and Queens kept coming up as a site that was of interest to both groups. So I was really excited to see how the Queens Museum as an institution with a long history that was presenting exhibitions could connect with people and this community in the space in Corona and Queens, which is New York City's most diverse borough and nearly half of its residents are foreign born. So there's a lot of different influences happening in that space. I mean, the, the, one of the kind of things you, you point out in the book that is in some ways like people almost wouldn't know anything about the place because it's, you know, it's not really a destination. You go through it to get to the Met Stadium um, or, you know, I, I think maybe you can get to one of the airports through through, the, through that district or whatever. But it, it, it's like, it's not like a, you go to Williamsburg or something to see to see the hipsters or, or whatever. And yet at the same time, it's this incredibly interesting cultural district in a way that I suppose, you know, if we weren't being corporate or whatever, or we weren't place branding, we'd say this is a true cultural dist- district. Uh, and I guess we sort of learn about that early in the book when, when you introduce that, I guess, the sort of history of, of Corona, you know, it's, it's sort of um, history of being a diverse place and also a, a kind of a space for experimentation, I think is one of the, the lines you ascribe to it. Yeah, I really, it really struck me. Like I initially go, went to Corona with an interest in the museum, but not wanting to make the project an ethnography of the museum itself. I wanted to focus on what was happening across Corona, and I was immediately drawn into this rich cultural and history and vibrancy that was happening there. It, in the early 20th century, was one of the first neighborhoods in New York City where Black Americans were able to buy property and own houses, which was a really really radical thing for the time. Um, And it meant that 
people were able to establish homes and create space there and create ways of living and um, organizing and celebrating different cultural histories and traditions in a way that was authentic to then the communities of immigrants and migrants from across the country and around the world that were finding homes there. Um, so it really creates this, this sense of vibrancy and urgency and um, community centers using arts as a way of bringing people together and celebrating, um, as well as public spaces that become de facto festival holding sites and places to um, try different foods. Um, but you're right, it's very much a neighborhood that largely is skipped over. Many of my uh, friends and colleagues in New York didn't necessarily know where I was going when I said I was going to Corona. Um, but Queens itself and these far out neighborhoods are sort of having a food moment where people are taking the seven train out to Flushing, which is beyond Corona, to get different types of Chezwan specialties and other foods or going to neighboring Jackson Heights. Um, but as it is, Corona is still sort of um, doing its own thing and very much the site of experimentation for the many different people from all over the world who live there. And uh, you mentioned the specific uh, site, the, the, the plaza. Uh, what, what was kind of interesting and special about uh, about the plaza? You, you sort of touched on the, the idea of a, a space for, uh, for festivals and, and, and stuff like that. But I mean, was it a kind of case of like, you know, <laughs> you saw it immediately and knew that this was going to be an important site or um, was it something that, you know, the interest in, in the plaza developed with the relationship with the museum? How, how did that kind of come about? The plaza is a really exciting case because initially I had heard about it before I started working on the specific project um, when the Queens Museum started holding events there that were getting some buzz amongst the local art world and the art scene. So I, I knew artists and curators who were, holding events there. And I was curious, what does that mean? It's in this, it's far away from me, what's happening. Um, so Corona Plaza is located at the base of the seven train in Corona in the center. So the seven train is the only subway line that connects across Corona. And it is two subway stops before where you would exit to get to the Queens Museum. And for a long time, it was this kind of abandoned triangle space where um, trucks carrying different goods would park and stop get out, take breaks before moving on to deliver their goods further, which made it sort of this space that you would want to avoid. You wouldn't want to hang out amongst a lot of trucks that were parking temporarily. But then the Queens Museum was able to leverage that and turn it into a space where um, they were able to bring people together and change what, what it meant um, to have this space that was at the base of the subway station, which so meaning it's a place that people would pass through consistently on their way home from school or work. And it instead became a gathering place, um, leveraging this program one run by the New York City Department of Transportation, the Plaza program. So they were able to leverage support from the city and work with a couple of other community partners to really transform what that space was and turn it into a vibrant community space. I mean, we're, we're going to hear much, much more about uh, both the space and the, the the programs around it, but but before that, I suppose we need to do a bit of kind of theoretical um, ground clearing as well, because you're writing about museums and in this case uh, the Queen's Museum and, and its various cultural partners at a time when museums, I guess, are, are sort of under a lot of pressure um, around their kind of their role, their civic function, their legitimacy on the one hand, as a kind of maybe form of institutional critique. And on the other hand, there is this uh, emerging or maybe emerged 
uh, tradition of things like community art, socially engaged art, that organisations have often been been very kind of keen on and have been very supportive of. And, and I guess it'd be good to hear about those two maybe more kind of, you know, theoretical uh, moments before we go back to the case study, that kind of sense of what are some of the controversies that are facing uh, museums and, and art museums, but also what's uh, the set of kind of practices of community and socially engaged art. Definitely. I think you that's a good comment This about this, moment of tension for museums at the moment. There is a lot of dialogue around uh, whose voices are being represented in museums and where does the money come from and um, what artists are being represented in particular questions or in particular exhibitions. And even more than that, there's um, these questions around the role of the museum museum itself. Uh, There are often these grand buildings that can be alienating to people. Um, You don't necessarily want to enter them unless you have a certain level of understanding to access that space. So there's a lot of barriers to entry for museums in and of themselves, um, especially now with this growing pressure around questions of funding and people protesting where where different money streams are coming from. So in this space, this idea of um, museums becoming socially accountable and working with people to try to um, adjust that can be appealing to museums as a sort of solution. which ties into what the larger art world conversations around socially engaged art or social practice are doing as well. There's great interest amongst artists to be actively engaging with people as the work that they are doing. Um, Socially engaged art is all about co-creation and collaboration and communication through that specific practice. So it is an art practice, but the process is just as important as the product. So it may be that, um, an artist is coming into Corona and talking to people and doing interviews with the, say, say the truck drivers who were parking in Corona Plaza, as well as the people that lived around the plaza, using that opportunity as a moment to create some sort of dialogue that that in itself can then become the artwork. Um, there is definitely great tension in this theoretical sense around what does that mean as the nature of art um, that is being validated by the art world changes the art world and the art market is typically understood how to value how to value a specific object, but not necessarily the practice around that. So there's a lot of dialogue to try to understand what that looks like. Um, at the same time, there's long-lasting legacies of community art, which people have been in, haven't been involved in for as long as there have been people practicing art. Um, art has always been a part of community and has always been a way to bring people together. So there's a tension there in terms of if. Uh, socially engaged art or social practice is gentrifying community art, which is something that uh, Project Row House's director, Rick Lowe, suggested, meaning is it changing this practice in a way so that it's no longer authentic and that it is more creating a level of status for the artist rather than actually supporting the community and the people that are engaged in what that work looks like. So there's tensions in this field as well, um, but I definitely think that there's an opportunity here if there can be greater understanding around some of the impacts of socially engaged art and social practice and trying to tease out the ways in which it can collaborate with community um, in an authentic way that is driven through uh, ethical engagement and inclusivity and equity to create projects that are responsible to place and people. And luckily enough, the book engages with precisely that. So the, the really obvious um, 
next step from from the detentions and opportunities uh, you've identified in, in in some of the the literature around um, both you know practices and institutions is I guess the question of like how museums actually do this stuff then and and I think it's in the third chapter sort of uh, towards the middle of the book you talk about cooperation collaboration co-organization and it'd be interesting to hear maybe some examples of of the different ways that museums might engage uh, and and be involved with communities definitely i think that is really critical because there's so many different ways to do it and i think the first thing that is important is that it has to be authentic to that institution and to to the the community or audience or place that they're trying to work with so for the queen's museum this meant that they followed practices and standards in community organizing. So they hired someone as a community organizer that was going to be doing this work, meaning actively engaging with people as their job. Um, This meant creating a department of public public engagement and um, community organizing that was specifically not a part of the education department or the marketing department and sending someone out directly into the community to do this co-collaboration organizing work. Um, other institutions have this type of role as well, but they might be more connected to the education department or to marketing. Um, I think it definitely has to be authentic to that space. So for the Queen's Museum, this has meant um, different programs evolving and being developed out of those relationships. So for example, they worked with uh, Cuban artist Tanya Bruguera and initially with Creative Time, another New York City arts nonprofit organization, Um, to develop what became Immigrant Movement International. So it's basically a satellite site of the museum that doubles as a community center that started as an artist project um, out of her dialogue with immigrants in Corona, specifically people from Latin America and South America, because she herself is Cuban, and creating a space that um, was authentically what they needed it to be. She thought it was initially going to be a kind of activist hub to be advocating for immigrant rights. And it is that, but more than that, it became what people needed in their daily lives, meaning a place where their children could come and practice traditional Ecuadorian dance, or a place where women could come every morning and do group exercise classes and socialize, a place where if you have a question about um, pathways to citizenship or taking English classes or tensions with your students' local school, that it was a safe place to go and ask questions. So this is a museum-led project, a museum-supported project that now is completely run by the community to be the space that they need it to be, that is arts-driven in practice practice and in action, um, but is this collaboration between museum and community to be authentic to the neighbors. The, the other one that comes up um, that I thought was was really interesting was uh, the relationship between the museum and the library, because there, you, you know, I, I guess you have a very different dynamic. You know, you, you've identified um, an, an arts led and also you know sort of um, formal uh, program, but here in the case of the relationship between the museum and, and the library, you've got um, I should say the Langston Hughes Community Library and Cultural Centre, you know, Queens. Uh, one of the kind of crucial institutions, and then you've got the Queen's Museum as well. And thinking about how they intersect and, and, and work with each other in ways that, again, you know, that 
is full of opportunities, but also there are some interesting tensions, you know, between maybe two different kinds of, I suppose, cultural value, two different institutions that have, you know, different kind of community purposes. So those uh, relationships I found really fascinating in that uh, kind of question about how uh, museums collaborate, cooperate, and organize. Yeah, I think that's a really great question. I have always loved libraries, and working on this project definitely gave me a deeper love for and respect for the work that libraries do in truly being authentic to their communities. They're not just uh, collectors of books, but truly are being the space and providing services that people need in their day-to-day lives. So you mentioned the Langston Hughes Community Library and Cultural Center, and I think that that is a great example of a space that was born out of the local needs of the Black community in Corona in the 60s and 70s to create the space that not only held books and that were completely representative of Black American traditions and global activist traditions, um, but also was a space where kids could go after school to get help with homework. Um, People could go for cultural programs in the evening. They have a lovely performing arts center and gallery space. And it is truly fulfilling this broader spectrum of what is needed in the community and isn't just holding books. Um, So that is, I think, an early predecessor for this uh, idea of experimentation and working with community. And now the the library and the museum are continuing to evolve and work in other ways. There's another library in Corona as well that's a little bit closer to the museum that has become a hub for uh, programming that the community organizing person from the Queens Museum goes to to hold workshops and create craft products with with local people. Um, There's also collaborative programming where the the Queens Library's New Americans program, um, where uh, people that are new to the country can take classes in anything from learning how to use a computer to learning different languages. There's a partnership with the uh, Queens Museum that involves um, programs happening in the museum as well as in the library so that it's creating a pathway to learn other sorts of arts practices or learn some of these uh, basic fundamental concepts such as language and other things in that in the museum space. And this, this partnership has been so successful, these different exchanges where the goals that the library is seeking to achieve and the goals that the museum is seeking to achieve are deepened, that there's in the next phase of renovation for the Queens Museum, there is a plan to embed the library in that space. And this has been a long, long-standing goal for the museum in and of itself. So that it means that part of the museum will be um, an official location for the Queens Library where people can come and get books and they can really deepen this collaborative programming relationship that they have already established. I mean, that is, I suppose, a really brilliant positive story. And it's a story of institutions kind of working together. But obviously, the critical literature suggests that there are real tensions, uh, and actually, you know, some big risks when we think about the need for kind of economic development, or maybe the demand for economic development, possible social kind of uh, policy goals, you know, you, you talked about IMI and, you know, pathways to kind of uh, engaging with citizenship and stuff like this. And then, you know, some of the things institutions like around um, cultural uh, activities that are deemed, you know, to be kind of of good uh, cultural worth or cultural standing by uh, critics or, you know, um, institutional um, curators or, or, or that, you know, sort of 
cultural uh, world. And, and I, I wonder how, you know, the kind of like the pro- programming of public space works here when you've got, you know, um, social, economic and cultural goals that often are, are kind of not aligned with each other and, and sometimes intention, particularly obviously in, you know, New York, which is incredibly expensive and uh, has, you know, a kind of like really serious kind of set of urban problems. Yeah, I think that there's there's obviously a lot of tensions. I think anytime you're bringing more than one institution together and that they're both claiming to support their neighbors and communities, that it's really hard for everyone to meet their bottom line, even if that is just a mission-driven bottom line, as well as do work that will not harm those that are participating. Um, and that you're right that in public space, this is particularly problematic. Um, public space exists to be... Uh, authentic and accountable to anyone that could potentially use it. But that comes with a lot of risks, meaning that the city is going to try to regulate it in some way. You want to control who has access to a particular plaza or square, or is it going to be open 24 hours? Or are you going to install benches in that space that um, have bars periodically, which prohibit people from sleeping there or other forms of hostile architecture tactics? There's a lot of different subtle, subtle design strategies, as well as um, other methods of control that are still keeping a space public, but then kind of quietly deciding who that space is for and who can access it. So this makes uh, something like the Corona Plaza example kind of a radical thing, because instead of saying um, we want this space to be solely run by the city, who can then determine what the hours are, how it's going to be cleaned, who has access, that kind of thing, um, they got more partners involved, which means that there's greater possibility to truly create something that can benefit people, but that there's more risks and other, other, other voices and tensions that are coming into that. Um, so in the case of Corona Plaza, there's a number of businesses that um, are located on the outer ring of the plaza, um, a drugstore, a church, an ice cream shop that's popped up because so many people are hanging out, you know, you want to sell ice cream. Um, but it's hard to keep them all happy all the time, right? Like you have lots of people in this space, but then when it's loud, the church isn't happy because they want to be having services and they want it to be quiet within their space. So it creates this kind of difficult line line to walk um, in terms of how do you how do you do that in a way that is truly beneficial to everyone um, and not keeping people out because at a certain point you do have to decide uh, these hours are too late or these types of practices cannot happen here. Um, and it creates a lot of tension between the partners around how do you how do you regulate that or how do you cut off when certain things can happen or when something has gone too far? I mean, the, the story of the tensions, it, it's really clear that um, you have both, uh, I guess, a kind of an academic or intellectual um, take on, on the museum and the plaza and the projects that have gone on uh, in the plaza. But also, like you're obviously really fond of the institution as well, you know. And 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 you know, even where there are these um, tensions between, you know, say late hours or uh, use of space, you know, you, you think there's a there's a kind of positive role uh, for the museum as a bridge, you know, sometimes between uh, community and government or uh, between larger New York institutions and, and and people living in the area. But but one of the things I was really struck by kind of later on in the book was the sense of that the museum has its own interests and it's not like a neutral bridge. So even where it's 
providing some of the glue for the community. It, it, it's got a precarious um, position. I was really struck by that, that use um, of, uh, of the word precarious. You know, it's something that comes up in the academic uh, literature at all. And, and I guess it'd be interesting to hear, I, I suppose, if not a critical, but a reflective take on, on where the Queen's Museum might be precarious in terms of its audiences, the kind of practices it has in terms of its civic role, even as you know you're, you're, you're very keen and, and rightly so, as the book demonstrates, to, to defend its um, its position. Mm-hmm. I think that this this strikes a chord for the one of the larger tensions in the museum field at the moment of this kind of myth of neutrality. There's a perception that museums, kind of like institutions of higher education, hold on to our our treasured objects and values and preserve them to represent them in some sort of authentic way back to the world in the future, where really the museum is is choosing which stories to tell and what that looks like. So this this kind of myth of neutrality is this greater frame. I think that the Queen's Museum is very dedicated to not trying to be a museum like the Metropolitan Museum of Art in Manhattan that is just a subway right away, but it might as well be another world, right? Like they are, they're not trying to be a global collecting institution presenting all of art history. They're very much trying to represent Queens and its neighbors, but that, that does come with some tensions because what truly is authentically Queens or how do you represent all of these different groups together? Um, so one of the things that the Queen's Museum has done through a lot of its organizing work is really connected deeply with the Latin and South American communities and other new immigrant communities. But then maybe in doing so, there's other groups that are have not been so actively as a part of that world, whether because they don't need it or because um, they have other ways of connecting, um, connecting with arts and culture. Um, but it, it definitely means that the museum can't be doing everything. So that's also where the sort of myth of neutrality comes into play and in that you have to make some decisions about how are you going to engage or not engage or which community partners you want to prioritize. And this um, can be limiting, um, but also, I guess, creates opportunities to choose who you would like to be more deeply aligned with. I mean, what, what do you think is is the kind of the future there? You know, what what will the museum and indeed, you know, the, the, the plaza um, look like? you know, maybe over the next five years. It's really difficult with, with an academic book. You know, you do lots of research and then, you know, it's like it's at least a year, but sometimes it's longer for publication to happen. Um, and, and the question, like whenever you do anything uh, kind of place-based is people are like, so what's going on now? And, and I guess, yeah, you know, has, I suppose, your optimism for the space and the institutions kind of carried on to today? And and do you think it's going to carry on into the future? Well, since I stopped collecting data for this project, the the board of directors had made a decision to change leadership for the museum in and of itself. So that it, it, that already was a dramatic change that happened immediately after I finished this project. Um, And it still at this moment is a little too early to see what that would look like in terms of, um, curatorial shifts or community engagement shifts. Um, on the surface, the museum still is doing programs like the Oye Corona uh, Festival that happens in Corona Plaza and doing this other community-engaged work. Um, but it definitely is possible that they could choose to pull back a little bit and play it a little more safely to ensure that other funding streams can continue, um, especially as uh, federal funding priorities change and and other things that... Um, 
kind of still being community engaged, engaged, but not pushing it as radically is a little bit safer. And it still places the Queens Museum kind of ahead of other similar institutions um, in New York or globally. So it would, it would be safer in terms of funding streams. And, and what are the kind of general lessons do you, th- do you think for other institutions, you know, um, even as these new challenges have emerged, you know, do, do you think we, we should be uh, kind of learning from, from Queen's Museum's practices? Definitely. I think, I think that the Queen's Museum has been doing this work a lot longer than many others. And even at this point, the idea of having a full-time community organizer on staff is a, is a radical way of working that many institutions can learn from, whether they're museums or other types of spaces that have a public accountability, but are not necessarily engaging with the public outside of their educational departments or marketing departments, that that's kind of step one. But I think that this is really something that is being pushed around the world. Um, This came up over the summer when the International Council on Museums proposed a new definition for museums about being more um, inclusive and embracing critical dialogue and really looking at the past, but connecting it to the future, which um, was is a dramatic shift from what the definition that ICOM had previously proposed was. So it was supposed to be voted on at their large meeting in September, and there was not enough agreement around the pathway forward that ICOM decided to not vote at that time, um, which I I was following this story with anticipation, thinking, oh, this is so exciting because that would really represent that where the Queens Museum is and other similarly community-engaged spaces are uh, really represent the future for all of museums. But perhaps in this moment, it represents that um, looking at how they cooperate with communities and make collaboration, communication, co-creation their central drivers are really just one way of future operating for museums. But it'll be interesting to see where ICOM falls in this as well. Oh yeah, ab- absolutely. And, and I think crucially it takes us, you know, right back to where, where we started. It, it's, it's that kind of sense of, you know, are these broader questions going to carry on being um, attached to marketing, audience development, education, or are, you know, institutions going to really get to grips with them in their entirety, you know, and, and as you've no- noted, it's, uh, it's it's not set yet, so you know there's still you know potentially some some interesting developments to happen. But equally, the one, one of the things the book does so well is is to kind of say, well, actually, there are lots of risks and, and lots lots of tensions. Are, are you going to be kind of carrying on working on museums, public space? Uh, what what sort of work are you doing, um, kind of moving forward now? I'm really interested coming out of this book in questions around how does art and institutions and art practice engage with public space and how can that influence city policy and possibilities for people to work in those spaces. Um, So I'm currently working on a project with an artist colleague of mine at ASU. His name is Gregory Sale, and he's working on this project at Alcatraz Island in the San Francisco Bay with uh, system-impacted people, so people with conviction histories that have um, spent time in prison or jail to really envision what their future selves look like. So he's been having, there's an exhibition that's been on Alcatraz over the past year, as well as a series of public programs that are really exploring what this means. Um, So it's been kind of exciting to think about looking, looking at a museum with this book project towards looking at what is arts engagement look like in alternative space 
which is still very much a nonprofit government affiliated sanctioned space, what kind of dialogues can happen in those spaces and how can that influence um, different communities of understanding around what does it mean to be someone with a conviction history, what sort of futures are possible. Um, So yeah, so I'm still continuing these questions of art and urban space and connecting with people.